1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into episode 37 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show we're going to be talking about the Philadelphia Black Mafia, an African-American organized crime syndicate based in Philly. The organization began as a small criminal collective known for holding up neighborhood crap games and dealing in the illegal drug trade. But at its height of operation in the early 70s until the early 80s, it managed to consolidate power and control a large portion of criminal activity in various African-American neighborhoods throughout Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. The roots of the Philly Black Mafia can really be traced to North Philadelphia and the racial tensions engulfing that section of the city in the mid to late 1960s. North Philly at the time was the city's center of African American culture and home to over 400,000 of the city's 600,000 black residents. The Philadelphia Police Department had tried to improve its relationship with the city's black community, assigning police to patrol black neighborhoods in teams of one black and one white officer per squad car and having a civilian review board to handle cases of police brutality. And despite the improvement attempts by the PPD, racial tensions had been high in Philly over the issue of police brutality. The city's black-run newspaper ran several articles on police brutality, which often resulted in white policemen being brought up on charges of brutality, only to be later acquitted. The summer of 1964 was the peak of the civil rights movement, with rioting breaking out in black areas of other northern cities, including New York City, Rochester, New York, Jersey City, and Elizabeth, New Jersey, stemming from allegations of police brutality against black residents, setting the stage of the Philadelphia race riot. The unrest began on the evening of August 8, 1964, after a black woman named Odessa Bradford got into an argument with two police officers named Robert Wells and John Hoff, who were black and white respectively. Because Bradford stopped the car while arguing with her boyfriend and refused to move out of the intersection at 23rd Street and Columbia Avenue, the officer then tried to remove Bradford from the car. As the argument went on, a large crowd assembled in the area and a man tried to come to Bradford's aid by attacking the police officers at the scene. Both he and Bradford were arrested. Later that evening, and throughout the next two days, angry mobs looted and burned mostly white-owned businesses in North Philadelphia, mainly along Columbia Avenue. Outnumbered, the police response was to withdraw from the area rather than aggressively confront the rioters. And even though no one was killed, 341 people were injured, 774 people were arrested, and 225 stores were damaged or destroyed in the three days of rioting. The riot was even reported to have cost $4 million worth of damages. An equally important circumstance in the formation of the Philly Black Mafia was the gang violence that gradually became a serious issue in Philadelphia in the late 1960s. From 1962 to 68, gang-related homicides per year jumped from 1 to 30. 
1969 alone, there were 45 gang-related murders, 267 gang-related injuries, and numerous incidents of burglary and purse snatching that affected gang members and innocent bystanders. So with no trust for the police and the street life looking more and more prevalent, it's alleged that a group of young black gang members including Sam Christian, Eugene Bo Baines, Ronald Harvey, Robert Mims, and nine others formed the Philadelphia Black Mafia. And though there was an entire group of these guys, Sam Christian really stood out as the leader. He was a former Black Panther with an extensive arrest record. He was also an imposing guy standing 5'10 and being described as a thick-necked, powerfully built 215-pound bully. In the years leading up to when the group came together, several founding members including Sam Christian, Ronald Harvey, Richard James, and Donald Day held up card games and extorted drug dealers as well as legitimate businessmen. After the formation, the group Christian led adopted the name Black Mafia and began enlisting recruits. The group was formed with the intent to coordinate and consolidate inner-city crime in numbers, prostitution, and extortion of legitimate businesses while combining with the rising drug demand in Philadelphia. Initially, gang members ripped off craps games, shook down drug dealers, and committed other crimes, garnering ruthless and violent reputations in the process, mainly in South Philadelphia. But I think, at this point, it's important to mention the role that the Nation of Islam played in the growth of the Philly Black Mafia, which was also known as the Muslim Mafia, due to the fact that many of the original members eventually became Nation of Islam members or converted to Islam. Even moving up in the Black Mafia's hierarchy was almost impossible without being a member of the nation. Members seemed to be involved in the religion because it was more of a symbol of their strength than a belief system. Many even joined the faith as a form of protection, as local temples were responsible for picking up protection money from members and were taught the ways of the streets. They also originally attached themselves to the Nation of Islam in order to help further their cause and seemed justifiable in the eyes of the Muslim community to say it was for their religion and not for self-interest. Which brings us to Temple Number 12, a Muslim temple located in North Philadelphia that belonged to the Nation of Islam and served as the main headquarters. But of course, before long, it became a place that really served as a spot for members of the group to come together and not only discuss faith, but also street activity. However, the temple also provided insulation, because their main place of operations was such a sacred place that they were able to hide in plain sight. Not to mention, police couldn't just barge in their front door without probable cause because it was a religious site. And with Sam Christian's okay, a founding member of the group named Eugene Baines was soon conducting meetings with a secretary who took minutes at rotating locations. And by 1968, the group's command structure consisted of 14 individuals with an average age of 29, which makes this a good place to stop and talk about the Black Mafia's structure and methods of operation. For one, they used formalized meetings and legal incorporated nonprofits and imposed a hierarchy on its members in an attempt to create discipline among their members. The meetings were organized at different locations between 1969 and 75 based on this hierarchy, while later iterations of leadership didn't like to record activities on paper. And as the gang gained local control, separate meetings were held for those holding positions of power or those who were general members. Many members were even transported to and from meetings while blindfolded by more powerful members to avoid compromising the secrecy of the location. As demonstrated by the manner in which meetings were run, oaths and rules were prevalent so that the group would avoid exposure. A secrecy oath was required to be taken by the members to ensure secrecy and that members wouldn't disclose important information. The oath also swore to report any violations of the oath under risk to family and other members. The Black Mafia also organized three different community service projects as a front to their criminal activity during their control. Other gangs posed a threat to the power of the Black Mafia, so organizations were created to combat gang violence 
efforts, though theirs would still be encouraged. One organization was called Black Bee Inc., and their aim was to put an end to the gang activity in the African-American communities. City residents and local law enforcement who saw the gang war unfolding in the streets supported these organizations, but they didn't know that the Black Mafia was behind them the whole time. This anti-gang program was the first of three government-funded agencies to be run by Black Mafia leaders. One of these agencies, called Safe Streets First Checks for $100,000 in donations, was sent to Mosque No. 12, the PBM's headquarters. Prominent figures such as then-District Attorney Arlen Specter and Attorney James Giles supported Safe Streets, and even helped it to receive nearly a million dollars by 1974 from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, plus private money. Another one of the more prominent figures in the corrupt government-funded agencies was a man named Clarence Fowler, who later began going by Samsuddin Ali. He was an alleged former hitman for the Black Mafia and became the group's most prominent figure involved in political corruption. He eventually even became close to both Mayor John Street and Governor Edward Rendell while becoming a power in Mosque No. 12. And the PBM's ability to hide in plain sight made it even more difficult for law enforcement to monitor their every move. However, it wasn't long after their formation that the PBM started doling out the brutal violence that they would become notorious for. One of the first incidents explicitly attributed to the Black Mafia by law enforcement officials was the severe beating of Pennsylvania Deputy Insurance Commissioner David Truly in May 1969. Truly, who at the time was investigating an insurance fraud case, was beaten with a lead pipe by a founding member of the Black Mafia named Richard James at the request of a third party. Truly lost three teeth and required 26 stitches to close his wounds. But before James could be brought back from jail in New York City, where he had been arrested for murder in November 1969, he died of a drug overdose. Police department intelligence files state that James was sent to New York on the orders of fellow PBM OG Eugene Baines to fulfill a murder contract. And while staying in New York, he had murdered a woman and a child and had wounded the man he was supposed to murder. The files state that James's subsequent overdose in jail was in fact a hot shot or a dose of drugs laced with poison administered to him by other Black Mafia members. The authorities concluded that the overdose was arranged to quote, ensure his silence in a Black Mafia related assault case. But of course, that wouldn't be the last time that the group killed one of their own, even just that year. And on April 19, 1969, they killed one of the group's founders, Nathaniel Williams. Williams arranged a crap game above a barbershop at Broad and South Street, and as usual, several Black Mafia leaders participated in the game. Strangely, Williams was absent from his own craps game, and as a result, when two gunmen busted into the room and robbed the pot and players, suspicions arose. The PBM leadership almost immediately heard in the street what they already suspected, that Williams had engineered the stick-up using neighborhood gang members, and that Williams had driven the getaway car himself. An hour and a half after the robbery, witnesses saw two men marching Williams out of a bar at 15th and South Street at gunpoint. Williams's body was found in an isolated area near the naval base in South Philadelphia with four bullets fired into his back. A Black Mafia member named Jerome Barnes was arrested for the murder in August 1969. Although it's alleged that PBM OGs Ronald Fairbanks and Walter Hudgens carried out the hit in retaliation for the craps game stick-up. However, in a trend that would be repeated countless times, charges against Barnes were dropped when police were unable to line up witnesses who would identify him. But the violence was still just getting started, only this next event would be tied to the PBM's growing greed and would throw the Black Mafia into the entire city's collective consciousness. By the start of the 70s, the PBM had exercised control over certain parts of Philadelphia for a couple years, and despite the fact that they were a criminal organization, the Black Mafia actually started out with good intentions. They had a primary focus in mind to keep the quote-unquote black dollar in their communities and to better them as well. 
but money for funding doesn't come out of thin air, so they developed a method to obtain funds. They would ask businesses in the neighborhoods they worked in for so-called donations to Mosque Number 12, their base of operations. Now, normally everyone would comply and donate when it was required, but those who refused never had a good outcome. Stores would mysteriously catch on fire, and sometimes store owners would go missing or end up dead. The most famous instance of this particular scenario went down on January 4, 1971, when a founding member of the PBM and one of their top enforcers named Robert Mims and seven other members went to the Dubro Furniture Store in South Philly. The owners of the store had refused to pay protection, so Mims and the others went there to send a message. They all entered the store one by one, posing as customers. And once they were inside, they pulled guns on the 20 employees present at the time and forced them to lie on the floor in the back of the store where they bound them with tape and electrical cord. 13 employees were beaten while two others were shot. Worst of all, a janitor who walked in on the robbery while doing his job was shot and killed as well. Another employee was even doused with gasoline and set on fire. And after their vicious treatment of the employees, they looted the officer in the store and set more fires to destroy evidence of the robbery. The eight criminals fled the scene as soon as the fire alarm went off, purposefully trampling on one of the victims' bodies before they left. The crime was so brutal that author W.E.B. Griffin wrote a novel based on it titled The Witness. In Philadelphia, crime commissioner and eventual mayor Frank Rizzo was quoted as saying that the Dubro Furniture Store robbery was, quote, the most vicious crime I have ever come across. And in the aftermath of the crime, one of the main conspirators, Robert Mims, fled to Chicago where he served as a bodyguard for Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Interestingly enough, he even became part of the Fruit of Islam, an elite group of gunmen who protected Elijah Muhammad and acted as his personal army. But even with Mims out of the picture, the violence continued in Philadelphia. And on October 27, 1971, a local lounge patron named Wardell Green was shot to death inside a club by a PBM member named Russell Barnes after arguing with his cousin just days before. Worse yet, not long after, Wardell's sister, Velma Green, was shot to death answering her door a week before she was set to testify against Russell Barnes and her brother Wardell's murder. And this trend of violence only continued throughout the rest of 1971, with the Black Mafia extorting and robbing individuals, particularly numbers runners and drug dealers. Two heroin dealers named Elijah Jackson and Vernon Gregg were robbed so many times that they fled Philadelphia when they started fearing that the PBM had placed a murder contract on them. However, these acts increased in profile and in quantity over the next two years, beginning with the murder of a heavyweight in the local drug scene named Fat Tyrone Palmer. And even though the PBM likely had some level of involvement in drug dealing up to this point, it was in 1972 that they really made a leap to the big leagues. To the point that between 1972 and 74, the DEA estimated that the Philly Black Mafia controlled nearly 60% of the heroin trade in their hometown, which brought Tyrone Palmer into the fold. The leader of an independent heroin and cocaine trafficking ring and the primary Philadelphia area contact for New York drug dealers including the infamous Frank Matthews. The problem he had was that he reneged on a drug deal with the PBM's founder, Sam Christian. And as a result, on Easter Sunday 1972, Sam Christian shot Tyrone Palmer at Club Harlem in Atlantic City right in front of 600 to 900 eyewitnesses. Before Palmer's bodyguards could reach for their guns, other Black Mafia affiliates also opened fire, wounding up to 20 people. And when it was all said and done, Tyrone Palmer, his bodyguard Gilbert Shatterwhite, and three women were killed. Afterwards, Sam Christian fled to the Midwest, being housed in multiple mosques in the area while the Philadelphia Black Mafia was left enemies with Frank Matthews, a New York-based drug dealer who was one of, if not the biggest in the country, and had a distribution network in 21 states. 
but by this point the PBM had the stature to stand on their own, and even though they controlled a large portion of criminal activities in various African American neighborhoods throughout Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley, including South Jersey, especially Atlantic City and Camden, as well as Chester and Wilmington in Pennsylvania and Delaware respectively, their sphere of influence stretched from New York to Chicago and Atlanta to Detroit. However, they were about to be faced with a new set of problems, because in 1972, a man named Jeremiah Shabazz would take control of Philadelphia's Mosque Number no. 12. Shabazz became a Muslim at 16 and left his job in 1954 to begin working with Malcolm X to establish the Muslim faith in Philadelphia, only to return in 1972 and become Minister of Mosque Number no. 12. The only problem was that his taking over put a face to the name that the Black Mafia had been quietly cultivating in Mosque Number no. 12 since its inception. Shabazz owned bakeries and food stores through his mosque, which would later be publicly criticized by the Nation of Islam's leadership in Chicago for drawing too much attention to itself as a quote-unquote gangster mosque, which didn't come as a surprise to most as the temple housed some of the most prominent members of black organized crime in Philadelphia. But Shabazz didn't hold the weight to affect decisions on the streets, and as a result, the black mafia's violence was about to reach an all-time high with the Hanafi Muslim Massacre. And although it was only just about to happen, the seed had been planted a while back. The whole conflict centered around a man named Hamas Abdul Khalis. Born in Gary, Indiana, Khalis was originally a Roman Catholic and Seventh-day Adventist, but eventually converted to Sunni Islam and on the advice of his Islamic teacher, infiltrated the Nation of Islam. He eventually even served as principal of the group's school and then went on to become Elijah Muhammad's national secretary at their Chicago National Headquarters from 1954 to 1957. Despite that, in 1957, he was demoted or lost influence in a dispute, possibly after unsuccessfully trying to convince Muhammad to change the direction of the group's movement. He then moved to New York City where he ran the Hanafi Matab Center in Harlem under his Sunni Islam and continued trying to convince members to defect from Muhammad. But the final straw really came when Khalees wrote a letter to members of the Nation of Islam claiming that Elijah Muhammad was a false prophet, and that certain members of his Nation of Islam were merely gangsters who were harming the real name of Islam. Then in 1970, Khalees even converted basketball star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, formerly known as Lou Alcindor, before his conversion. And in 1971, Jabbar donated a $78,000 mansion to Khalees to set up a headquarters in Washington, D.C., setting the stage for the massacre. On January 12, 1973, several Black Mafia affiliates traveled to Washington, D.C. and scouted the home. And just five days later, Sam Christian's right-hand man and assistant Muslim minister in Philly named Ronald Harvey, along with six other gunmen invaded the home looking for Khalees. But when they arrived, neither him or Jabbar were present, and what the group did next was horrendous. Khalees' son Dowd was killed first, he was then taken to the third floor and shot while Abdu Noor was shot in the bedroom. Then one of Khalees' wives was forced to watch the hit team drown two of the children in an upstairs bathtub, and was also taken to the basement where she was forced to watch them drown her nine-day-old granddaughter in a sink. She was then bound, gagged, and shot eight times while Khalees' daughter Amina was put in a closet and shot eight times as well. And in the subsequent investigation, Ronald Harvey and six other PBM members were charged for the crime. And if this massacre didn't make it evident, 1973 would be the Black Mafia's most violent and depraved year yet. The next time the PBM would make the headlines was just five months later with the murder of Major Coxon, another Philadelphia intermediary and heavyweight in the drug scene working for Frank Matthews. But on June 5th, 1973, Major Coxon made the mistake of messing up a heroin deal for the PBM and failed to pay off his $200,000 debt to the group. 
and as a result, the same day, four PBM members broke into Coxon's home in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and hogtied Coxon, his girlfriend, and three teenage kids. One of the kids was eventually able to get free and hopped over to a neighbor's house for help. Of the five people in the house, three survived, and of those that survived, two of them took multiple bullets to the head but were somehow able to pull through. The ones that died, including Major Coxon, were found hogtied and gagged with bullets in their heads and in a pool of their own blood. These extreme acts of violence caught the attention of the FBI because the Philly Police Department was no longer able to turn a blind eye to the crimes going on in the black communities they were supposed to serve. But of course, that didn't mean they were going to stop yet, and the next high-profile murder carried out by the PBM would be yet another shot at the kingpin Frank Matthews, one of their biggest rivals. And it came on October 2nd, 1973 with the murder of Thomas Cadillac Tommy Farrington, an independent crime lord and lieutenant to Frank Matthews. He was killed by a PBM hitman named Charles Russell after feuding with PBM higher-up George Abney over Farrington's street tax. And as an interesting side note, in just a year's time, the Philly Black Mafia had murdered three of Frank Matthews' four Philadelphia intermediaries, but the latest murder just created a chain event. Because on October 15th, 1973, George Abney was decapitated for skimming drug proceeds after assuming control of Cadillac Tommy Farrington's rackets and territory. And when it was all said and done, the PBM had perpetrated 10 separate cases of murder, resulting in at least 20 bodies in 1973. And that's just the cases that can inextricably be tied to the group. But by the time 1974 was almost at a close, they'd have to tie up a loose end from the previous year. And on December 29th, 1974, Charles Price, an early PBM member and part of the Hanafi Muslim Massacre hit squad, was tortured and hanged in prison for the belief that he was about to, or already had, turned state's evidence. However, in the same year, the Black Mafia's power began to fracture as their founder, Sam Christian, had been arrested in December 1973. And in September 1974, 21 members and group affiliates of the PBM were arrested in an early morning raid by federal drug agents and the Justice Department's crime strike force. As a result, the Black Mafia would fracture and reform several more times, with each generation remaking itself more light, agile, and deadly, with a growing political influence. But you could certainly see their power somewhat waning, as in the 11 years following the 1974 indictment, they would only be responsible for 16 murders. And while still a considerable amount, it was definitely a downtick from years like 1973 that had 10 murders alone. However, they would still show that they had incredible reach, especially when it came to getting rid of witnesses, and this time it would be Allen and Renate Wellman. Allen was a lawyer of and future government witness against Big Phil Blair. As a result, he and his wife were slain execution style inside their San Fernando, California home in the weeks leading up to his scheduled testimony in court. Despite this, Big Phil Blair would go on to be convicted of double homicide. And while the violence continued, so did the money-making, and in the mid to late 70s, a PBM higher-up named Lonnie Dawson got the group even more involved in the narcotics trade. They started making meth and selling to both outlaw biker gangs in the area at the time, the Pagans and the Warlocks. At the same time, the Muslims were doing drug deals with local Philadelphia crime family mobsters like Raymond Long John Martirano, who was more than likely the undisputed largest wholesaler of the precursor chemicals for meth in the entire U.S. at the time. But as time went on, the PBM's focus started to stray away from progress and more towards retaliation, and in the late 70s, they carried out two retaliatory murders for an event that happened in the mid-70s. 
The first came on February 14, 1978, with the death of Shirley Kelly, the wife of Ernie Kelly, who testified against the Philly Black Mafia. She was stabbed to death inside her home in retaliation for her husband's cooperation and testimony at a 1974 kidnapping and robbery trial. Then, on June 12, 1980, their child, Barry Kelly, was killed in retaliation for the very same reason. But throughout the rest of the 1980s, there were only three murders definitively linked to the PPM, and all were likely over territorial disputes. However, just as the world thought they were done dealing with the Philadelphia Black Mafia, they were shocked back to reality when they rebranded and hit the streets once again. And in 1985, with the majority of members of the PBM incarcerated, a young hood named Aaron Jones and seven others founded the Junior Black Mafia. Besides Jones, the group included James and Hayward Cole, Rick Jones, Benjamin Goff, Tracy Mason, Leonard Patterson, and Mark Casey. From the earliest days of JBM, members and associates of the original Black Mafia served as mentors to various JBM members and are known to have played an important advisory role in the formation and development of the Junior Black Mafia. The JBM was also able to form even more connections by cooperating with members and associates of the Philadelphia crime family. They also modeled their criminal activities after the Philly crime family and the original Black Mafia, relying heavily on violence and extortion to further the, its drug enterprise. In addition to using the mob as a model for their organization, JBM members and associates developed a number of links with mobsters and associates. But the founder of this new wave of crime remained Aaron Jones, who was born one of 13 children in West Philadelphia in 1962. As a kid, he ran errands and shined shoes for members of the original Black Mafia, of which his older brother Eddie was a member. Aaron began his drug trafficking career selling $10 bags of crack on the corner of 52nd Street and Walton Avenue near his brother Ike's dry cleaning business. And accordingly, when the Junior Black Mafia was founded, the expressed goal was for the collective to capitalize on the recent emergence of crack cocaine in Philadelphia, and engage in drug trafficking until each member had raised enough money to open and develop legitimate businesses. Each member was required to make an initial investment of $1,000 and to contribute the same amount weekly to a fund set aside for the establishment of legal businesses. Members who came after the founders were even required to have a clean criminal record. The group originally operated in the Germantown section of northwest Philadelphia, taking advantage of the disarray of the Philadelphia crime family under Nicky Scarfo due to the group's violent infighting and power struggles. The Junior Black Mafia, headed by James Cole, began incorporating other drug gangs operating in Germantown into their organization and gradually expanded outward. And as the JBM began to take shape, the fledgling organization formed a board of commissioners composed of all the original members. And all the board members in theory shared power equally, and decisions were to be based on consensus, informants state that Aaron Jones quickly assumed the dominant role on the board, becoming the de facto chairman. Still, his responsibilities included collecting money and distributing crack and cocaine to street dealers. Supplied by James Cole's cocaine connection in California, named Earl Stewart, the JBM practiced what essentially amounted to hostile takeovers when competing gangs refused to be absorbed into their ever-widening distribution network. The group routinely gave rivals a get-down or lay-down ultimatum, join the network, or be murdered, and it was this takeover scheme that led them to show how bold they were. For example, in March of 1985, a rival named Craig Haynes, who'd established his own drug business in West Oak Lane, South Philadelphia, and only in North Philly, but after he refused to allow his network to be absorbed by the JPM, he was engaged in a shootout by members outside Philadelphia's City Hall. Despite the City Hall shooting, the organization reportedly remained under the radar of law enforcement for two years until city police became suspicious of the prevalence of luxury cars in Germantown to the point that it triggered an investigation by the Pennsylvania Crime Commission. Regardless, the JBM continued to rule the streets. 
And on June 12, 1988, the group's chief enforcer, Anthony Reed, shot a man named Mark Lisby twice in his chest and once in the right leg in front of his home over $150. Then, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission report from 1989 alleged that the JBM was in cooperation with members of the Philadelphia crime family, including now-alleged boss, Guinea Joey Merlino, in the cocaine business. That same year, JBM gained complete control of the Southwest Philadelphia drug trade when the Nelson Brother organization, with whom JBM shared control, control of drug activity in the area was dissolved. Rick Nelson was sent to federal prison in Oklahoma following drug trafficking convictions, and Wayne Nelson was murdered. By this time, the JBM also dominated north-central Philly, parts of south and west Philadelphia, and of course, Germantown. Police estimates even placed the organization's workforce at over 300 employees, and before long, the last four years of hard work began paying off, although differently for everybody. On January 6, 1989, a high-ranking JBM member named Marvin Robinson turned himself into the district attorney's office following a succession of raids on his stash houses by Philadelphia police, during which four cars, two motorcycles, $350,000 cash, five semi-automatic weapons, furs, jewelry, 178 vials of crack, and three and a half pounds of powdered cocaine were seized. Then, by the summer of 1989, another JBM member named Rick Jones had amassed a mini-business empire. He owned 20 pieces of real estate and businesses, including Wincott Auto Cleaners in West Oak Lane and the Queen Lane Deli in Germantown. While another member named Benjamin Goff owned Rims Plus, an auto detailing shop in North Philadelphia as well as Philadelphia Auto Works, an auto accessory shop in Oak Lane, and the Automobile Bank, a used luxury car dealership, and many young. Shootings attributed to the JBM going on all over Philly resulted in members wearing bulletproof vests as a matter of policy. They also spurred the formation of a joint agency task force comprised of DEA, ATF, FBI, IRS, Pennsylvania State Police, and local police resources dedicated to dismantling the organization. And by 1989, authorities had seized over $1 million worth of cash and property from JPM members, but the group managed to attract even more attention from law enforcement when violent crime related to the drug trade increased even further, as there were 25 murders attributed to JBM between April 1988 and August 1989, but the organization also had no quarrels about killing their own. So concerned that JBM associates with Daryl Woods and Neil Wilkinson could be informants, Aaron Jones ordered JBM enforcers Anthony Reed and Kevin Bowman to kill them, and on March 13, 1989, Wilkinson was shot to death while Woods was left paraplegic after being shot five times. Also in March, JBM enforcer Anthony Reed also shot Michael Walters to death with a 10mm handgun after the teen hit Reed's car with a snowball. Years later, Reed would receive the death sentence following a first-degree murder conviction for the shooting. However, it wasn't long before Aaron Jones would prove to be just as, or even more ruthless than his original Black Mafia predecessors. And on July 11th, 1989, Christopher Laster, Stacy Rucker, and three other JBM members were allegedly sent by Aaron Jones to eliminate a rival drug crew that controlled the corner of Moore and 24th Street in South Philadelphia. The five shooters opened fire on the six men present, but instead injured a woman named Sylvia Stinson who was shielding three children, and killed Willie Bowman, both of whom had no connection to either gang. And just six days later, whether it was karma or just dumb luck, Aaron Jones was arrested on gun charges at a Philadelphia hospital, when a nurse treating him for an ulcer discovered a loaded 380 handgun under his pillow. 
Then on August 10, 1989, Donald Branch was shot dead inside a restaurant in West Oak Lane in an attempt on Jones's life by Curtis Perry and members of the John Craig Haynes Drug Organization. Besides Branch, two other bystanders were shot as well while Jones was unharmed in the incident. A little over a month later, Anthony Anderson, suspected of being involved in the plot to kill Jones, was found shot to death on a back porch in Germantown. But with the attempt on the group's second-in-command came even more problems. On August 23, 1989, JBM leader James Cole was arrested on federal weapons charges in northeast Philadelphia. Then, just a week later, Aaron Jones was recharged with the attempted murder of convicted drug dealer Richard Isaac. But he and his co-defendant Samuel Brown, JBM's third-in-command, were acquitted following Isaac's retraction of his earlier testimony that Jones and Brown were two of his three attackers. The two had originally been charged in February, but charges were dropped after Isaac refused to cooperate. According to police, Isaac was a rival narcotics dealer who'd established his own drug network in north-central Philadelphia. He had been left paralyzed from the waist down after being shot ten times on February February 21st, 1989. The Pennsylvania Crime Commission cited Isaac's refusal to do business with the JBM as the motive for the shooting. But Isaac wasn't the only rival to oppose encroachments by the group. It's just 19 days prior to Isaac's shooting, Terrence Goss was shot by JBM members as well. Established narcotics traffickers George Blakely and Leroy Keyes formed a coalition with longtime North Philadelphia loan shark, numbers runner, and drug trafficker named Richard Spragans and conspired with New York area narcotics distributors in an effort to combat JBM's growth. But despite this growth, important figures in the group started dropping off one by one. To start on September 25, 1989, JBM's top enforcer, Anthony Reed, was convicted on weapons charges stemming from a prior arrest during which Reed was found in possession of a 380 handgun. In the same month, JBM co-founder Mark Casey died from a drug overdose while in detention in Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison awaiting trial. Then, JBM leader James Cole was convicted for his federal weapons charges on November 3rd. While in detention at the Philadelphia Industrial Correction Center awaiting trial, Aaron Jones repeatedly stabbed another inmate named Parrish Barnes. And although Jones was acquitted on the attempted murder charge, he was charged with aggravated assault for the stabbing and transferred to Holmesburg prison. According to police, while Jones was in detention awaiting trial for the aggravated assault charges, one of his lieutenants named Leroy Davis took over daily operations for JBM in West Philadelphia, Overbrook, Winfield, and South Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Brian Thornton assumed overall leadership during Jones's incarceration. And just to add to the mounting wave of problems facing JBM, to close out the year, they'd face a revolt. Because Sam Christian, the founder of the original Black Mafia, waged an unsuccessful attempt to gain control of the JBM after his release from prison in late 1989. Christian called a meeting, ostensibly for the purpose of mediating a dispute between the JBM and rival narcotics networks. Under the guise of seeking unity and an end to factional violence, Christian sought to exploit both groups financially, but of course it didn't work. And as the 1990s came around, high-ranking members of the JBM continued to be taken off the street. Like Aaron Jones, who is currently housed on death row at SCI Green, a supermax prison in Franklin Township, Pennsylvania. And this mass plague of convictions caused the JBM to go underground. Despite that, some accounts report that the Junior Black Mafia still have a presence in modern-day Philly and parts of southern Jersey and Maryland. It's believed that their membership hovers around 50 to 100, allowing them to control territory in west and north Philly while also doing business with the Philadelphia family on the south side. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for episode 38. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. 
Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.